Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. It covers brand new movies that are out in theaters or VOD or streaming services, usually new movies. You can check that out. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can find the link to that at my website, Quipster.net. Today we're going to be starting off a whole new, I would say, trilogy, but I think I'm going to go beyond just the first three films. Where I end, I'm not quite sure yet, but it is more than a trilogy for sure. In fact, it's still kind of going on today. It's spinning off of the last trilogy where I looked at films that were based on old TV shows, and this certainly qualifies, although it does not have the bumbling protagonist that that previous trilogy did. I'm going to be going for maybe one of the most well-known of the film spin-offs from television, the Star Trek series, and I'm going to start off with a film that's not quite from the 1980s. In fact, it came out just the month before the 1980s in December of 1979. I'm talking about Star Trek, the motion picture. Star Trek here bringing back William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, George Takei, Walter Koenig, and Nichelle Nichols from the TV show, and newcomers Persis Kambata and Stephen Collins. Robert Wise is the director. Harold Livingston gets the sole screenplay credit, even though so many people did actually work on the screenplay at one point or another. It did get a very generous G rating for the theatrical release. The director's edition, which I'll talk about toward the end of this show, garnered a PG rating. I would probably rate this PG because of some brief violence and some disturbing content. The runtime for the theatrical release is 2 hours and 12 minutes. Now, Star Trek The Motion Picture is a continuation of the television series that ran on NBC from the years 1966 to 1969. Now, that series suffered abysmal ratings when it was initially run, and then Paramount sold the show to syndication, and there... It developed a very strongly devoted audience in many markets, not only in the United States, but in many other countries around the world. By 1972, there started to become talks between the series creator Gene Roddenberry and NBC on resurrecting the property. But as a TV movie, they wanted an option to release that TV movie into theaters in foreign markets. Now, Paramount, who had the rights to the Star Trek property, They ended up nixing the idea because of the costs of rebuilding sets or costumes and props for a one-off movie. NBC declined to buy the four Star Trek TV movies that Paramount required for them to get involved. So Paramount did not make a counteroffer when it was declined. They were making a killing in syndication. This new Star Trek series was seen as just costly competition for its own audience. So side negotiations sometime later found Roddenberry and Filmation. They would relaunch Star Trek into this animated series in 1973. It actually was an Emmy award-winning animated series. The original cast provided the voices for their cartoon counterparts. And it was, you know, a modest hit at that time, although a lot of people considered it a little bit too stiff compared to the original show. By 1974, though, Star Trek was so in demand that Paramount ended up taking up Roddenberry's idea of continuing the series as a movie, except one for theaters. According to Gene Roddenberry, there was an initial desire by the studio to replace the cast with more well-known actors. He convinced them to go with the established cast that fans already knew and loved. And without bankable stars, though, Paramount would only budget that film at a modest $2 million. 
Additional star power would be provided through celebrity cameos they had in mind. They would recreate the sets for a one-off movie that was still pricey, but they deemed that it could be worth it if the sets were reused for a return of the series on television or in future theatrical sequels. So Roddenberry set to work on the screenplay for this movie. His first draft was completed in 1975. He titled it The God Thing. In The God Thing, the crew of the Enterprise encounters God... But by the end of it, it turns out to be an alien being with godlike powers. Paramount ended up rejecting that idea. They thought maybe there were some anti-religious overtones that would be a bit controversial. So Roddenberry ended up seeking to publish that story as a novel. He never quite finished it. But the idea for that, if you've seen Star Trek V, you know that that's kind of incorporated into that film. Now, Paramount ended up going beyond Roddenberry at this point. They hired other science fiction writers to come up with their own ideas. And, and those authors included such major talent like Ray Bradbury and Harlan Ellison, Theodore Sturgeon, Robert Silverberg, and many others. Paramount rejected them all, though. They claimed that the ideas that they were given were fine for TV, but they weren't quite worthy of a motion picture. Roddenberry surmised that Paramount Brass really could not comprehend that science fiction would grab traditional moviegoers. And so this became a conundrum for writers of Star Trek as a movie. They were expected to give audiences everything that they enjoyed about the TV show, but they didn't want it to seem like the TV show. So in 1976, Paramount ended up hiring the London-based writing team of Alan Scott and Chris Bryant for this all-new screenplay that would come to be known by its title of Star Trek Planet of the Titans, where the Enterprise crew goes back in time to this technologically advanced planet's prehistoric days, becoming something akin to the Titans in Greek mythology, or something like that. The ending involves Spock showing primitives about fire and then gave these aliens a leap forward towards civilization. William Shatner's contract with Paramount at that time had expired, so it was unknown whether he would return, and Kirk was written to be missing for the story purpose there. Paramount rejected the screenplay here, though. They thought it was pretentious, something that the public would not come out to see. Phil Kaufman ended up being brought in as a director. It was going to be an $8 million picture by that point, and they revised the Scott Bryant script to include Kirk because William Shatner ended up signing on to the project. Kaufman had a lot of big ideas of what he wanted to do with this film. Uh, he wanted to have Kirk die at the beginning of the film and then get brought back to life at the end, probably because he didn't want to rewrite the entire script. And that would leave Spock as the central protagonist of this story. Kaufman also envisioned this as an epic with a lot of psychological underpinnings. He wanted Toshiro Mufuni, the great Japanese actor, as the leader of the Klingons in this film. And Production design had actually begun. Even though they had not completely approved the script, they brought in Ken Adam, who was known for his work on the James Bond films for preliminaries that would go on for several months in London. Paramount ended up canceling Kaufman's revision. After eight months working on this, they soured on actually making a film altogether. It seemed a bit counterintuitive. Star Wars was just on the verge of coming out. You would think that they would want to ride this while it was hot, but Paramount kind of misread this at the time. They thought that whether Star Wars was successful or a failure, it would be bad for Star Trek. Either way, a failure would show that science fiction-based films really did not have mainstream appeal, a success by Star Wars would steal Star Trek's theatrical thunder. They thought that the fans would jump ship and Star Trek would seem like leftovers. They concluded that the Star Trek concepts actually worked better on television than they would as a big screen blockbuster. So they ended up scrapping the film in order to launch this all-new TV series with as many of the original crew that would want to return, plus some new characters to fill in the blanks. 
Star Trek II, which is what it was kind of called at the time, not to be confused with The Wrath of Khan, this would be the flagship series for a proposed fourth network. Every Saturday, there would be a new episode of Star Trek, followed by an original movie, and Paramount would expand the shows to other nights as the audience began to grow for their programming. One problem, though, Leonard Nimoy did hold out. He was leery of the grind of doing a weekly TV show again. He wanted to progress beyond what he was doing. He was amenable to appear in the movie that Phil Kaufman was doing because he respected Kaufman's vision, especially given that Spock was going to be in the main role. Leonard Nimoy starring in his own motion pictures, so to speak. When it did fall apart, Nemo kind of jumped ship in a way. He appeared in Phil Kaufman's 1978 film, The uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. Now, some interpreted Nimoy's reticence as dissatisfaction with playing Spock altogether. In fact, his 1975 autobiography was entitled, I Am Not Spock, and that fueled the feeling that Nimoy was done with the Spock role. Nimoy actually did not feel like he was done with the role, but he happened to be in a feud with Paramount over merchandising with his image without compensation, and he wanted that addressed. He was also committed at that time to his starring appearance in Equus on Broadway, and that made him unavailable anyway. Paramount did offer Nimoy the chance to have a small appearance in the two-hour pilot for the show and then a recurring part as time permitted in a limited number of episodes, but he ended up declining it as not really worth his while. Roddenberry did want to move on. He felt that Star Trek was more than just about Spock. They could outlive that. And really, he couldn't stand actors calling the shots on where things were going to go with Star Trek. So he was going to introduce this new Vulcan character called Lieutenant Zahn, and he would be developed and played by David Gautreaux. And they would also introduce a new female crew member, a Delton, played by model in 1965's Miss India, Persis Kambata. There would also be a first officer named Willard Deckard, who would be cast with someone with lead star potential if things did not work out with William Shatner, for instance, if he asked for more money for season two. And if needed, Roddenberry really had ideas for phasing out all of the original Star Trek series actors for younger and cheaper talent should they demand more money. Now, Roddenberry said he wanted more nuanced storylines for this new TV series. They wanted to depict the characters' private lives and their relationships, something you didn't see on the original television show. This new TV series, under the complete control of series creator Gene Roddenberry, would carry the title of Star Trek Phase 2. It would premiere with a two-hour pilot episode chosen among the 13 scripts they commissioned for season one. Of the scripts, they opted to flesh out the episode that was scripted by Alan Dean Foster. It was entitled In Thy Image, and they wanted to go with this one as the debut because it had the novelty of the Enterprise crew being on a future Earth, which is something that the original show really did not depict. So In Thy Image... It was an adaptation of a script concept called Robots Return that was written by Gene Roddenberry himself for Genesis 2, which was a failed attempt by Roddenberry at another TV series in 1973. It never got produced beyond its pilot. Robots Return involved sophisticated computers that were left on one of Jupiter's moons that ended up evolving into this robotic life form that traveled back to Earth searching for the so-called God that gave it life. Alan Dean Foster would change this to a satellite searching for its creator, NASA, for the purpose of this script. Harold Livingston, he became the creative producer for Star Trek Phase Two, despite never having seen the original show, which was kind of curious, but he was known as a good writer. He helped develop the scripts. He did like the idea for Alan Dean Foster's story, but he felt that Foster's writing was not up to his standards. And due to 
time constraints and him having difficulty hiring writers that he actually wanted to take on the script, Livingston developed Foster's treatment into a feature-length pilot himself. Now, with sets that were built and the scripts that were written, it looked like full steam ahead for Star Trek Phase Two at this point. Unfortunately, the Paramount Network idea began to lose traction. Member stations and advertisers started to express disinterest. Cable TV was coming up. They had a lot of competition there. It seemed like, you know, maybe this was the wrong time to really start. Paramount at this point decided, well, if that's not going to work, they could sell this as a movie pilot to one of the existing networks. And they hoped that it could get picked up once again as a series on one of those networks. But those networks started to resist Paramount. They were a little bit mad at them for trying to launch a rival network. They would have to sit this one out. So Paramount ended up going back to the drawing boards somewhat. They reconsidered making Star Trek into a feature film that would be the best path moving forward, at least at this point, with the television series seeming like it was dead. The notion to return to a feature film also resulted from the success of Close Encounters of the Third Kind that came out in November in 1977, it proved that science fiction interested the public beyond just Star Wars. And Paramount now felt that they had the best property to be the next potential blockbuster with Star Trek. They had a built-in fan base and they were ready to go. In Thy Image, it happened to be the only feature-length script that had Paramount's approval at that time, so it was quickly greenlit as the screenplay going forward for what would be entitled Star Trek, but then it got retitled to Star Trek the movie and then ended up becoming Star Trek the motion picture because it was deemed as a little bit more serious than your typical movie. Paramount wanted a director with big screen experience to come in for this theatrical film. Among the names that he saw on the shortlist, Gene Roddenberry preferred two-time Oscar-winning Best Director Robert Wise. And one of the reasons why he wanted Wise, not only for his talent, but he also met him before. They had good rapport after appearing together on a panel at a sci-fi and fantasy film festival several years back, and so he thought they could work together very easily. The trouble, though, is Wise was pretty much unfamiliar with the Star Trek show, and he would have to get up to speed. He procured some old video cassettes that had older episodes, and he liked some of it. Other aspects he deemed mediocre. But he saw the potential there for making a movie. Now, Wise wanted tightening of the character relationships and clearer motivations for their actions for the movie rather than the kind of thing you would see on the TV show. Wise's daughter and son-in-law, they happen to be big Star Trek fans. They were ecstatic that he was taking this on. And they told him, though, that Spock is essential for the success of the Star Trek property. And it would suffer without him. So... Wise had executive producer Jeffrey Katzenberg meet with Leonard Nimoy, who is performing still Equus on Broadway between seasons, hosting his new syndicated television series called In Search Of. Katzenberg convinced Nimoy of Wise's vision and also the importance of not letting anyone else take over the Enterprise's Vulcan role. That would probably keep him from being able to return. So Nimoy ended up signing up partly because of his respect for Robert Wise as a filmmaker and partly because of his affection for Spock. But I think most importantly, Paramount agreed at that time to financial compensation for his merchandising. They reportedly gave him a sum of $2.5 million that would include the salary for him appearing in the film. Unfortunately, Roddenberry's latest revision of the script had already removed Spock altogether, and that would make it a challenge to put in Spock without a complete overhaul of the script. 
In Roddenberry's next revision, Spock would end up appearing, but it was only at the beginning of the film he would return to his home planet, Vulcan, to remove all traces of human emotion, and he would end up going mad from the pressure. Nimoy here felt that no one would want to see this happen to the character, and he privately told Robert Wise that he did not want to be in the movie at all if his character didn't have anything to contribute. Paramount viewed Gene Roddenberry's new script as clunky and trite, and they were not willing to work with it. So responsibility to incorporate Spock went once again to Harold Livingston. Livingston really detested Gene Roddenberry's ideas and his writing. He thought he was a terrible writer. He jettisoned all of these ideas until he received sole screenplay credit yet again. The Spock solution that they came up with involved a prologue on Planet Vulcan, very similar to what Roddenberry had suggested. Spock fails Kolinar, this ritual purging of emotions. And then the Vulcan character that was hired on to replace him on the Enterprise, Lieutenant Commander Sonic, would die, just like they did in the original script. But Spock would still end up resuming his duties as the science officer of the Enterprise once things didn't work out on Planet Vulcan, and he would complete the role that was originally written for Lieutenant Zahn. Now, because Zahn's role was not integral to the main plot of the Star Trek, the motion picture plot, there would be additional things for Spock to do. There would be an additional spacewalk scene that was added for the climax to give him more prominence. It wasn't really as much as Nimoy had hoped for, but it was acceptable. Because Roddenberry continued to be a bit intrusive to the rewriting of the film, he had to sign a new contract that barred him from interfering with the revisions, and he ended up ignoring this very often. He butted heads repeatedly with Harold Livingston. In this way, Roddenberry could be seen as emulating Admiral Kirk. He was unwilling to accept being kicked upstairs to his executive role, and he would push his way into captaining his old ship. Now, Nimoy ended up mediating the script revisions. He met with Livingston after hours to hammer out the changes. Revisions still seemed to come by the hour because Roddenberry could not sit idly by. They required timestamps so the actors and crew would know which one they were supposed to utilize at any given moment. The situation ended up growing intolerable for everybody involved, and Livingston ended up quitting in December of 1977. But Paramount still did not want to go with Roddenberry alone. Dennis Linton Clark was brought in to handle revisions. They wanted to get Spock incorporated. Clark got along with Roddenberry even worse than Livingston. They started off on the wrong foot because Roddenberry's penchant for playing practical jokes on his crew and his actors. The one that Roddenberry played on Clark, which was replacing his secretary for this actress that became completely incompetent and obnoxious, it resulted in Clark having a meltdown and there was a lot of resentment from which he never recovered. After three tense months of not really getting along, Clark was out. Livingston returned to complete the script, which he claims had been rewritten several times, obviously, and none for the better. He would get the script back into shape if only Roddenberry was kept away for good. Now, Roddenberry continued intervening even though he was not being monitored. He ended up replacing script pages that Livingston would submit with his own revisions. Pretty sneaky there. Livingston quit multiple times due to Roddenberry's continued meddling. Higher-ups would still interject. They convinced Livingston to return. They gave him assurances and more money to get him to come back. The two writers, though, ceased to be on speaking terms by that point, and Roddenberry was finally banned from further disruptions. But he kind of got revenge in a way. He ended up signing on with publishing company Simon & Schuster. They happened to be owned by the same parent company as Paramount, Gulf & Western. 
he was going to write the novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture, much to Livingston's consternation. Now, this story went through so many revisions that I hesitated to give you the plot. So this is the final plot of the film. I won't go into spoilers, though. Now, fast approaching Earth is this cloud-like alien entity that destroys all that approaches it with its nebulous form. The not-quite-fully-refitted Enterprise is the closest vessel available in the space cloud's approach toward Earth. Admiral Kirk pushes his way to take over the mission over the man that he picked as his successor as the captain, Willard Decker. Kirk makes every attempt to reason with this living entity who goes by the moniker of V'ger. V'ger ends up abducting the Enterprise's navigator, Ilea, who ends up returning in a mechanical form, giving voice to this entity. And the bad news is V'ger wants to rid Earth of all of the carbon-based life forms, effectively ending life as we know it for everyone on the planet, unless Kirk and company can save the day. Now, the plot is way more complicated to that, but that's kind of the backbone of it. Now, production of Star Trek The Motion Picture began in August of 1978. They brought back many of the contributors from the original show. They did have a new costume designer, though. His name is Bob Fletcher, and he replaced the TV show's uniforms. He brought in pastel-colored, new-agey versions that he felt was in keeping with the cerebral nature of this new story. The cast hated the design. They called them space pajamas. They hated the design fiercely. You know, they outfitted the crew as if they were expected to cosplay at both a Star Trek convention and a Renaissance fair. That's how they kind of looked. The skin-tight costumes made it difficult for the actors to sit. And they really couldn't use the restroom without accompaniment from someone in the costume department because the zipper that existed for these wardrobes only existed in the back. Further compounding the problems beyond the costumes was the special effects team. Advertisement specialists Robert Abel and Associates were hired to do the special effects for the film. Now, Abel estimated that the budget for special effects was going to be about 4 to $6 million. As they started, though, they felt that the filmmakers started asking them to make visual effects that were laughably preposterous, so they opted for designs that they felt would work better. They were constructing this on the side. Paramount approved them doing the new designs despite extending the budget with further delays, but red flags ended up getting raised sometime into the production when Abel's later estimates approached $16 million, not just $6 million. So Paramount was very wary of what was going on there. They brought in special effects advisor Douglas Trumbull, who worked with Robert Wise on the Andromeda strain to oversee Abel's work. And they also added John Dykstra, who did Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica, to support him. It turns out that Abel spent much of the initial $6 million that they were given on a fancy new studio and a lot of new equipment that they used for some of their side work that Paramount was not getting any money on. So they ended up looking at what they actually had made for the movie, and they discovered that they really had not made anything that they considered to be usable. So Abel was fired... Trumbull would end up having to deliver the visual effects from scratch, along with his own crew, in a very short time frame, which meant very long hours and a lot more money, another $10 million to fix what was broken. Now, as this was going on, there was also tension developing between Paramount and the composer, Jerry Goldsmith. Paramount wanted the score to emulate more like a John Williams sound to extend its appeal to what was popular at the time. Roddenberry also made some suggestions to push to incorporate the TV's show's music into the score much more. He felt that fans would be disappointed if they didn't hear Alexander Courage's legendary theme. Now, Goldsmith did incorporate that theme whenever 
the captain's log comes into play. But Goldsmith found all of these demands absurd, and he ended up walking off the set. Paramount was under great pressure to complete the picture on time, though, so they ended up calling Goldsmith back, and they promised that he would be able to do things his way after all. And despite all of the quibbling there over what they wanted Goldsmith's score to sound like, his score would end up becoming very iconic in the world of Star Trek. In fact, it was used as the theme to the television series in 1987 for Star Trek The Next Generation. In fact, it was also brought back for Star Trek V as well. Now, time constraints ended up becoming a really big problem, so Paramount ended up having to remove a lot of the budget constraints. They started running 24-hour shifts. They wanted to deliver the film by the hard deadline of December 7th, and that was because they wanted to avoid having to pay back $30 million in guarantees to its exhibitors. Expenses at that point ended up skyrocketing to a massive $46 million overall. That was four times the cost of Star Wars, and that put Star Trek The Motion Picture just behind Cleopatra as the most expensive Hollywood production of all time. All the signs seem to be pointing toward impending disaster here. The last minute completion meant that they had no time for sneak previews to try to generate the buzz that they normally did. And this all for a film based on a canceled TV show that had no box office stars. This was extremely risky at this point. So Paramount needed to put something out there. They fueled a $9 million budget for advertisement, but they had to curb national campaigns. There were anti-blind bidding laws that prevented the film from being exhibited until December 21st in 15 states that had those laws because Star Trek was not quite complete yet. So they didn't get to view the film that they were purchasing as the law required. So despite all of these quibbles, it was bad press at the time. Fans, nevertheless, were not dissuaded from seeing what would be the first live-action Star Trek in 10 years. They were eagerly anticipating that, enough to amass $11 million in its opening weekend. That would break the record that was set by Superman just the year before. When it ended up opening in those 15 new states on December 21st, the third weekend for its release went even higher than that. It boasted a $12 million weekend, and all told, the film would garner over $82 million in the United States, and other countries added another $57 million for a grand total of $139 million. So, of all the Star Trek films featuring the original cast, and this is including all of its sequels, Star Trek The Motion Picture, believe it or not, it sold the most tickets overall, and it stayed the highest grossing in the franchise if you adjust for inflation. And all of that money did not include the merchandise that was hotly selling because it was released during the Christmas season. It was a hot commodity at the time. Now, Star Trek The Motion Picture, unfortunately, received mixed reviews upon its release. I think the worst knock on the film was that it is boring. You know, a lot of dazzling visuals and music, but it fell short of what Star Wars was in excitement. And it started to wander too close to the ponderous and sterile nature of 2001 A Space Odyssey. But it was kind of a unflattering comparison because it wasn't quite as noble as that film. Lengthy effect sequences offered very little action for a lot of this film, and that included this endurance-testing five-minute sequence that shows Kirk's approach to the Enterprise, which a lot of people started rolling their eyes at seeing. The film would end up earning a lot of unflattering nicknames, uh, Star Trek the Slow Motion Picture and Star Trek the Motionless Picture and a lot of others. A lot of the action consists merely of members of the Enterprise crew staring with their mouths agape at what they're seeing on the view screen of the bridge as the Enterprise 
Enterprise passes through the massive spaceship until reaching Viger's inner sanctum. Now, in their defense, the producers felt that they had spent really so much on the visual effects that they needed to show what they paid for, even if the pacing of the film heavily suffered as a result. The story still has that 2001 A Space Odyssey feel of humans fighting this rogue artificial intelligence. It lacks the immediacy of a lot of the conflicts in the other Star Trek movies, so Discovery here is propelling this story, and it trades action sequences for lengthy moments of the crew staring in awe at this large and nebulous structure that comprises V'ger's strange architecture. Contrivances are injected in the film in a way that does dumb the story down, makes it a little bit more palatable, I guess, to more mainstream audiences, especially during the crucial climax of the film. It starts to feel a little bit rushed and a a little bit hokey there. Some fans actually don't like the film, even though they're hardcore Trekkers. They don't like the film's derivativeness to several episodes of the TV show. The plot specifically resembles an episode called The Changeling, where a space probe originally launched from Earth begins to threaten all life. There are also elements that come from uh, an episode called The Doomsday Machine, which is about a machine out to destroy planets. And there's also an episode of the animated series called One of Our Planets is Missing, which has a giant space cloud that eats planets and it requires the Enterprise to intercept before it kills millions. You know, there are a lot of similar plots in other episodes of the Star Trek show. You know, many of the ideas in Star Trek are often cannibalized and the, the crew of the Enterprise frequently finding God or a God. And then they realize that they're dealing with either an alien or a robot or a powerful child or the sentient computer. The motion picture seems to be of this mold that is very familiar to Star Trek fans. Now, Star Trek, the motion picture, I think, is neither as bad as its reputation nor do I think it's as mind-blowing as the creators tried to make it. I think of all the Star Trek films, it's probably the one that's closest to pure science fiction, whatever that means. And it also means that it is least accessible for those who are looking to Star Trek for action or thrills. Robert Wise's methodical approach does separate it in tone and tempo and the themes from the rest of the sequels that came after this. It uses a lot of older film textures, some epic film tropes. I mean, it has an overture to begin the film. There's a classical editing style employed here, some gauzy lighting effects, some anachronistic reverence for all things outer space. It really does feel like a film that would have been made years before Star Wars would have come out. And the viewers of the series often treat Star Trek The Motion Picture, despite being the first film in the series, as a standalone effort. It's not really in keeping with the overall series that followed this. Some people choose to ignore it. Others have come to admire it because of its distinction from its follow-ups. So for that, I would say for those people with only a passing interest in Star Trek, you might want to start with the follow-up to this, The Wrath of Khan, and maybe only look back if you really are hooked. But for diehard fans, I would say you need to start here. It's the one with the original crew that most resembles the television series in that way. So it's kind of a bridge between the Star Trek TV show, and the movies that would follow. And like the carbon-based crew of the Enterprise, it is imperfect. It comes close to disaster. But in the end, I do think it succeeds at the job it was intended to do. For that, I will give the theatrical version three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means I do think that it is recommended for those people who like this kind of movie. If you're a Star Trek fan, you definitely will probably most likely find it enough here to entertain you for the two-plus hours. If you're not a Star Trek fan, I don't think that this is going to give you anything that you haven't seen before other than better special effects. The theatrical release is like an episode of the old TV show, but filled with a lot of filler, so you probably won't come around thinking that it's particularly good. But I happen to like it enough to give it three stars out of four. Now, there is an exception here, and I want to get into the reason why. is because 
Star Trek The Motion Picture, the theatrical release, is not the only version. I alluded to this when I started this show. The film actually exists in three different forms. Obviously, the theatrical release. There's also an extended version that features about 12 minutes of previously excised scenes. It was created to fill a three-hour time slot when it appeared on ABC in 1983, and they ended up releasing that version on VHS and on Laserdisc, in 1983 as well. You could probably find that it's harder to find these days because in 2001, there was a director's edition that was released on DVD. It's basically a re-editing of Star Trek The Motion Picture using some of those excise scenes from the ABC cut, but it's not just a re-editing. Robert Wise claimed that the theatrical release was more of a rough cut. It was rushed out to make the premiere date. He feels that the director's edition is the version he would have made if he had the time to work on it. It features more character development. They actually went back and redid a lot of the special effects, so the effects work here actually looks much cleaner and much more eye-popping. There's a new sound mix involved in order to give it a much more up-to-date sound design, and there is tighter pacing because they ended up cutting out a lot of the slack and they ended up injecting a lot more of the character development. It is a much better take. That version I give three and a half stars to. I do think that that is a good film. And definitely, if you're going to see a version of this film, I would recommend the 2001 Director's Edition to people who are seeing this for the first time. If you've already come to know and love the original theatrical version, obviously you're probably going to end up watching the old version or maybe both versions. But if you're new to this, if you haven't seen it before, the Director's Edition, I think, is a much more representative take of where this film should have gone. And it reduces a lot of the lulls of the original story. So three and a half stars for the Director's Edition. Now, the problem here with the Director's Edition for people who are viewing it nowadays, if you have a high-def television, the Director's Edition is not available on Blu-ray. It's not available to stream in high definition. The theatrical version is still the one that they go with. So as of this recording, it still does not exist in high definition format. So you'll have to go with the theatrical version if you want high def. But if you don't mind watching it in standard definition, the DVD... I still think is the way to go. So thank you everyone for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. Obviously, I'm going to follow Star Trek The Motion Picture up with its 1982 follow-up, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, sometimes just called Star Trek The Wrath of Khan for some people. Many people consider it the best of the Star Trek films. As far as whether I think that or not, I guess that awaits to be seen. So if you haven't checked it out already, I definitely do recommend watching that movie, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khans, co-starring Ricardo Montalban in probably his best film role and his most memorable, and a film I'm really looking forward to revisiting for the next episode. If you have any thoughts on Star Trek The Motion Picture or any of the subsequent films that you want to talk about, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. You can find links to my email, my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. Any of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me. Until next time, thanks everyone so much for joining me on this trip around the world where no one has gone before. Well, except for millions of people, I suppose, in 80s movies. (laughs) 